So I'm writing a novel. It's the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and sometimes interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. The novel in question remains titled, Untitled Sword and Sorcery Novel. (laughs) And last time I made what you could call an outline for the novel as a whole, a guide, a lighthouse document, which is a term I just made up for fun, why not? that I would need to go through a similar process for each short story, but I wanted something overall for the whole thing to help me really get my head around this short story cycle that I'm writing. But the ending, as I described it in that uh, little outline there, was vague as hell. Before getting wrapped up in the actual events, the plot, or even what the ending would be about, generally speaking, you know, the story, I felt I needed to know, literally, what's the big idea, right? What's the big idea at the core of this final destination for Vo's adventures, my my protagonist, the reader's journey, and, you know, my own self in writing the dang thing? Well, a few years ago, I became aware of an essay called The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction by Ursula K. Le Guin, and it really stuck with me. It's basically antithetical to 99% of classic sword and sorcery, which is therefore making it clearly incompatible with my novel, right? Except, perhaps, as a final destination slash kind of setup for a sequel where we'd see what Vo gets up to in her post-adventuring years, assuming she survives the finale of this book, which has not been decided. This is where I would like to remind you that I'll explain or outright read any works or, you know, explain, you know, why, why a certain author is important, you know, anybody, any names I mention that you need to be familiar with in order to get the episode to that end. The carrier bag theory of fiction is not that long and the author is deceased, sadly, and it's available for free online, has been for years. So I'm just going to start this episode proper by reading the essay and then we'll get into why I think it's such a cool thing that I could use to be the core of the ending of my untitled sword and sorcery novel. I will also link to it in the show notes in case you want to read it yourself and I would recommend for those of you who like physical copies of things and think that this essay may be something you too want to study at at length in detail, there is a lovely uh, physical print edition of the essay with a whole bunch of extra material including some very lovely art It's put out by a publisher called Ignota, I-G-N-O-T-A. You can go to ignota.org to, you know, figure out how to buy that or just, you know, give it a search wherever, you you know, good books can be found. Anyway, how about that essay then? Here we go. The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction by Ursula K. Le Guin. In the temperate and tropical regions where it appears that hominids evolved into human beings, the principal food of the species was vegetable. 65 to 80 percent of what human beings ate in those regions in Paleolithic, Neolithic, and prehistoric times was gathered. Only in the extreme Arctic was meat the staple food. The mammoth hunters spectacularly occupy the cave wall and the mind. But what we actually did to stay alive and fat was gather seeds, roots, sprouts, shoots, leaves, nuts, berries, fruits, and grains, adding bugs and mollusks, and netting or snaring birds, fish, rabbits, rats, and other tuskless small fry to up the protein. And we didn't even work hard at it, much less hard than peasants slaving in somebody else's field after agriculture was invented, 
much less hard than paid workers since civilization was invented, the average prehistoric person could make a nice living in about a 15-hour work week. 15 hours a week for subsistence leaves a lot of time for other things, so much time that maybe the restless ones who didn't have a baby around to enliven their life, or skill in making, or cooking, or singing, or very interesting thoughts to think, decided to slope off and hunt mammoths. The skillful hunters then would come back staggering with a load of meat, a lot of ivory, and a story. It wasn't the meat that made the difference. It was the story. It is hard to tell a really gripping tale of how I wrested a wild oat seed from its husk, and then another, and then another, and then another, and then another. And then I scratched my gnat bites, and Ool said something funny, and we went to the creek and got a drink and watched Newts for a while, and then I found another patch of oats. No, it does not compare. It cannot compete with how I thrust my spear deep into the titanic hairy flank while Oob, impaled on one huge sweeping tusk, writhed screaming and blood spouted everywhere in crimson torrents, and Boob was crushed to jelly when the mammoth fell on him as I shot my unerring arrow straight through eye to brain. That story not only has action, it has a hero. Heroes are powerful. Before you know it, the men and the women in the wild oat patch and their kids and the skills of the makers and the thoughts of the thoughtful and the songs of the singers are all part of it, have all been pressed into service in the tale of the hero. But it isn't their story, it's his. When she was planning the book that ended up as Three Guineas, Virginia Woolf wrote a heading in her notebook, Glossary. She had thought of reinventing English according to a new plan in order to tell a different story. One of the entries in this glossary is heroism, defined as botulism, and hero in Wolf's Dictionary is bottle, the hero as bottle, a stringent reevaluation. I now propose the bottle as hero. Not just the bottle of gin or wine, but bottle in its older sense of container in general, a thing that holds something else. If you haven't got something to put it in, food will escape you, even something as uncombative and unresourceful as an oat. You put as many as you can into your stomach while they are handy, that being the primary container. But what about tomorrow morning when you wake up and it's cold and raining and wouldn't it be good to have just a few handfuls of oats to chew on and give little oom to make her shut up? But how do you get more than one stomach full and one handful home? So you get up and go to the damned soggy oat patch in the rain and wouldn't it be a good thing if you had something to put baby oo in so that you could pick the oats with both hands? A leaf, a gourd, a shell, a net, a bag, a sling, a sack, a bottle, a pot, a box, a container. A holder. A recipient. The first cultural device was probably a recipient. Many theorizers feel that the earliest cultural inventions must have been a container to hold gathered products and some kind of sling or net carrier. So says Elizabeth Fisher in Women's Creation, published by McGraw-Hill in 1975. But no, this cannot be. Where is that wonderful, big, long, hard thing, a bone, I believe, that the ape man first bashed somebody with in the movie and then grunting with ecstasy and having achieved the first proper murder, flung up into the sky and whirling it there became a spaceship thrusting its way into the cosmos to fertilize it and produce at the end of the movie a lovely fetus, a boy, of course, drifting around the Milky Way without, oddly enough, any womb, any matrix at all? I don't know. I don't even care. I'm not telling that story. We've heard it. We've all heard all about all the sticks and spears and swords, the things to bash and poke and hit with, the long, hard things. But we have not heard about the thing to put things in, the container for the thing contained. That is the new story. That is news. And yet, old. Before, once you think about it, surely long before, 
the weapon, a late, luxurious, superfluous tool, long before the usual knife and axe, right along with the indispensable whacker, grinder, and digger, for what's the use of digging up a lot of potatoes if you have nothing to lug ones you can't eat home in, with or before the tool that forces energy outward. We made the tool that brings energy home. It makes sense to me. I am an adherent of what Fisher calls the carrier bag theory of human evolution. This theory not only explains large areas of theoretical obscurity and avoids large areas of theoretical nonsense inhabited largely by tigers, foxes, and other highly territorial mammals, it also grounds me, personally, in human culture in a way I never felt grounded before. So long as culture was explained as originating from and elaborating upon the use of long, hard objects for sticking, bashing, and killing, I never thought that I had or wanted any particular share in it. What Freud mistook for her lack of civilization is a woman's lack of loyalty to civilization, Lillian Smith observed. The society, the civilization they were talking about, these theoreticians, was evidently theirs. They owned it. They liked it. They were human. Fully human. Bashing, sticking, thrusting, killing. Wanting to be human too, I sought for evidence that I was. But if that's what it took to make a weapon and kill with it, then evidently I was either extremely defective as a human being or not human at all. That's right, they said. What you are is a woman. Possibly not human at all. Certainly defective. Now be quiet while we go on telling the story of the ascent of man, the hero. Go on, say I, wandering off toward the wild oats with Oo in the sling and little Oom carrying the basket. You just go on telling how the mammoth fell on Boob, and how Cain fell on Abel, and how the bomb fell on Nagasaki, and how the burning jelly fell on the villagers, and how the missiles will fall on the evil empire, and all the other steps in the ascent of man. If it is a human thing to do to put something you want, because it's useful, edible, or beautiful, into a bag, or a basket, or a bit of rolled bark, or leaf, or a net woven of your own hair, or what have you, and then take it home with you. Home being another, larger kind of pouch or bag, a container for people. And then later on you take it out and eat it or share it or store it up for winter in a solider container or put it in the medicine bundle or the shrine or the museum, the holy place, the area that contains what is sacred. And then the next day you probably do much the same again. If to do that is human, if that's what it takes, then I am a human being after all, fully, freely, gladly, for the first time. Not, let it be said at once, an unaggressive or uncombative human being. I am an aging, angry woman, laying mightily about me with my handbag, fighting hoodlums off. However, I don't, nor does anybody else, consider myself heroic for doing so. It's just one of those damned things you have to do in order to be able to go on gathering wild oats and telling stories. It is the story that makes the difference. It is the story that hid my humanity from me. The story the mammoth hunters told about bashing, thrusting, raping, killing about the hero. The wonderful, poisonous story of botulism. The killer story. It sometimes seems that that story is approaching its end. Lest there be no more telling of stories at all, some of us out here in the wild oats, amid the alien corn, think we'd better start telling another one, which maybe people can go on with when the old one's finished. Maybe. The trouble is, we've all let ourselves become part of the killer story, and so we may get finished along with it. Hence it is with a certain feeling of urgency that I seek the nature, subject, words of the other story, the untold one, the life story. It's unfamiliar, it doesn't come easily, thoughtlessly to the lips as the killer story does, but still, untold was an exaggeration. People have been telling the life story for ages, in all sorts of words and ways. Myths of creation and transformation, trickster stories, folk tales, jokes, novels. The novel is a fundamentally unheroic kind of story. Of course the hero has frequently taken it over, 
that being his imperial nature and uncontrollable impulse, to take everything over and run it while making stern decrees and laws to control his uncontrollable impulse to kill it. So the hero has decreed through his mouthpieces the lawgivers. First, that the proper shape of the narrative is that of the arrow or spear starting here and going straight there and thuck, hitting its mark, which drops dead. Second, that the central concern of narrative including the novel is conflict. And third, that the story isn't any good if he isn't in it. I differ with all of this. I would go so far as to say that the natural, proper, fitting shape of the novel might be that of a sack, a bag, a book holds words, words hold things, they bear meanings, a novel is a medicine bundle, holding things in a particular, powerful relation to one another and to us. One relationship among elements in the novel may well be that of conflict, but the reduction of narrative to conflict is absurd. I have read a how-to-write manual that said a story should be seen as a battle and went on about strategies, attacks, victory, etc. Conflict, competition, stress, struggle, etc. within the narrative conceived as carrier bag, belly, box, house, medicine, bundle, may be seen as necessary elements of a whole, which itself cannot be characterized either as conflict or as harmony, since its purpose is neither resolution nor stasis, but continuing process. Finally, it's clear that the hero does not look well in this bag. He needs a stage or a pedestal or a pinnacle. You put him in a bag and he looks like a rabbit like a potato. That is why I like novels. Instead of heroes, they have people in them. So, when I came to write science fiction novels, I came lugging this great heavy sack of stuff, my carrier bag full of wimps and klutzes and tiny grains of things smaller than a mustard seed and intricately woven nets, which when laboriously unknotted, are seen to contain one blue pebble, an imperturbably functioning chronometer telling the time on another world, and a mouse's skull full of beginnings without ends, of initiations, of losses, of transformations and translations, and far more tricks than conflicts, far fewer triumphs than snares and delusions, full of spaceships that get stuck, missions that fail, and people who don't understand. I said it was hard to make a gripping tale of how we wrested the wild oats from their husks. I didn't say it was impossible. Whoever said writing a novel was easy? If science fiction is the mythology of modern technology, then its myth is tragic. Technology, or modern science, using the words as they are usually used in an unexamined shorthand standing for the hard sciences and high technology founded upon continuous economic growth, is a heroic undertaking, Herculean, Promethean, conceived as triumph, hence ultimately as tragedy. The fiction embodying this myth will be, and has been, triumphant. Man conquers Earth, space, aliens, death, the future, etc., and tragic, apocalypse, holocaust, then or now. If, however, one avoids the linear, progressive, times-killing, arrow, mode of the techno-heroic, and redefines technology and science as primarily cultural carrier bag rather than weapon of domination, one pleasant side effect is that science fiction can be seen as a far less rigid, narrow field, not necessarily Promethean or apocalyptic at all, and in fact, less a mythological genre than a realistic one. It is a strange realism but it is a strange reality. Science fiction properly conceived, like all serious fiction, however funny, is a way of trying to describe what is in fact going on, what people actually do and feel, how people relate to everything else in this vast sack, this belly of the universe, this womb of things to be and tomb of things that were, this unending story. In it, as in all fiction, there is room enough to keep even a man where he belongs, in his place, in the scheme of things. There is time enough to gather plenty of wild oats and sow them too, and sing to little Oom, um and listen to Ool's joke, 
and watch newts, and still the story isn't over. Still, there are seeds to be gathered, and room in the bag of stars. And that's it. This essay was first published in 1986, written by a woman born in 1929, but it still feels pretty relevant to me. So how does this essay that's obviously very much kind of telling people like enough already with stereotypically masculine killing stories that try to solve all the problems by hitting them on the head and then yes, it's done forever, hurrah, problem solved. How does that connect to me wanting to do a collection of short stories very much in the mode of a subgenre known for people picking up big sticks and swords and warhammers and crushing things and then going at the end of a mere usually 5,000, 6,000 words, hurrah, problems dealt with. Maybe there's a new adventure on the horizon, but that thing, that thing is dealt with that we just had a little adventure around. Hmm, how does, how does this plug in? <laughs> well, if this novel and its stories collected within it are the tales of Vo's adventuring days from her early youth where she's trying to become a capital H hero as in the stories that she was raised upon through the middle where she's living more for herself in either kind of roguish you know city of thieves type stories or maybe on the back end of the middle more bloodthirsty leader of men into battle all that good stuff you know Conan type stories then into the kind of cosmic wilderness of the back end, the third where she voluntarily or involuntarily, and I'm definitely leaning to involuntary as I record this, serves people more powerful than her, goes to places that are so strange she could have never imagined them, but ultimately at the end she is set free of servitude to be dumped in front of the home of the wizard that she originally was, you know, swore to go kill when she was a young woman leaving the island in the first place. Well... The heroic persona that Vo tries to craft that sets her off into all of this at the very beginning, you know, it comes out of stories that she was raised on. I wonder if maybe after 15 odd years of adventuring spurred by those stories, what kind of stories she might be more inclined to live by by the time she's dumped in front of that wizard's home. Maybe she'll be anxious to move on from living the killing story to living the life story, right? To thinking less about the individual, more about the community, to thinking less in terms of violent, usually, resolution, and more about that continuing process. Yeah, this is somewhere for her to go as a person and the novel to go as kind of an idea. And it also points to a way for me to once again try and have my cake and eat it too, right? I want to explore the genre that's mostly worked well in short stories, but I want to write a whole novel, so I do a short story cycle, a novel composed of short stories. And this essay that's all about going against those kinds of stories, the sword and sorcery, killing man, whatever, blah, 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 fascinates me, sets my mind on fire, makes me want to keep going down that alleyway, it makes me want to write a book that is all about the life after the adventuring, the life after the killing story, growing beyond it. I want to see what Vo's like in her late 30s through to, I don't know, her deathbed, I guess. Maybe she founds a community and we have a like a mosaic novel, you know, the kind of novel where each chapter is like a different story about a different person, but they're all sharing like a location or a job or whatever. You know, maybe it's a mosaic novel about a village that Vo founds in her you know early middle age after years of adventuring. Maybe I should just write that book instead of my untitled sword and sorcery story cycle thing. No. No, because A, I don't think I'm ready to write that book yet. And also, 
I want to have fun with the killing story. <laughs> I want to have fun with the sword and sorcery stories. I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to do the thing that I know I really want to grow beyond, not necessarily in terms of what I enjoy, because let's face it, you know, all kinds of adults love stories, myself included, uh, about, you know, teenage adventures, even though in our actual lives we've moved well past those days. In a similar vein, even though I know that, you know, one strong man solving problems by hitting things is fascist as hell. I'm hardly the first person to say that about, you know, fantasy stories of a certain flavor or superhero stories and all kinds of other stuff. I think that maybe I can enjoy those stories as long as I'm not hopefully living in a society or contributing to society being based around the ideals of those stories. Plus, now that I know I have this destination at the end of the novel, as far as the, you know, the core idea, uh, based around my extrapolations from the carrier bag theory of fiction, you know, moving toward the life story along this cycle of killing stories for the most part, I can now take pieces of the carrier bag theory of fiction that really set light bulbs off in my head, you know, and kind of pull those things back from the destination across the novel, across the skeleton of this outline that I just did, and put more meat on them bones, add more depth to that story. For example, the part where she talks about how, you know, violence and conflict are still in life stories, but things like, you know, fighting hoodlums off is just one of those damned things you have to do in order to be able to go on gathering wild oats and telling stories. It isn't heroic. Well, right away, that makes me imagine middle-aged Vo living in the community that she's founded, spotting some bandits over a hill. Maybe a younger member of the community is like, oh, we're you a big hero. Let's go deal with them. It'll be an adventure. And she's like, ah, I just got to deal with it. It's swatting gnats. You know, maybe you can even have her doing that in the background, having the big battle. And in the foreground, the real story is happening. Okay, cool, Oliver. How do you get there? Well, you get there through the book we're currently writing, which could show the evolution of Vo's approach to violence through the thirds that I described, getting us to the eventual conclusion I just brainstormed. And there's a little bit of help for that a little further along in the essay. The part where she talks about how conflict is just, you know, one necessary element of a whole which itself cannot be characterized either as conflict or as harmony since it's, this is the novel she means, its purpose is neither resolution nor stasis but continuing process. Interesting. Hmm. Resolution. Stasis. Continuing process. One, two, three. How many acts does my novel have? How many parts does linear time always have? Beginning, middle, end? Hmm, okay. How can we graph this onto Vo at her various ages? Well, in the first third, where she's about 19 to 24, 25, and she's trying to be a big capital H hero, I'm thinking of those years in my own life and the craving for resolution, for dealing with problems. How many times as a young person, especially if you've just had your first like couple of courses at college that have really opened your eyes to how there are all these inequalities in the world, how many times as a young person have you looked around and said, why doesn't anybody deal with this stuff? It's so obvious. You just get in there and you do the thing and then it's dealt with. You crave resolution to things. You crave that simplicity and you have all that energy inside you to pour towards that resolution. Then in the middle of the book where Vo just becomes concerned with herself, well, I gotta tell you, whenever I've met someone who's only really concerned with themselves, their own gratification, you know, et cetera, et cetera, they don't really, you know, people like that or people who are in a phase like that, they don't tend to change very much, right? Because they're not thinking about personal growth. They're just thinking about personal appetites. Maybe the appetite grows, but that's hardly character development now, is it? And so stasis can be the middle. 
which I can really see working because it's in that middle where I see myself most leaning into the classic forms of sword and sorcery from the original pulp magazines, whose heroes tended not to change a hell of a lot within any given story. And so after the almost hedonistic violence of her period of stasis, and certainly a kind of hedonistic writing by me where I'll just be enjoying leaning into that stuff, we go into the final third, where at first she's kind of lost, you know, the stasis of the middle has been disrupted by whatever the big act turn will be at the end of Act 2, and maybe she comes around to the idea that life is really more of a continuing process, which certainly to me feels like the more mature way of looking at things, and this is what gets her to thinking more along the lines of the life story. Only two at the very end be plunked right down in front of a classic sword and sorcery problem, an evil wizard you swore revenge on once many moons ago. And I gotta tell you, I myself am very curious to see how someone who has spent their whole life thus far, their whole adult life, moving through one kind of storytelling philosophy as a way of living the killing story through to a completely opposite one, the living story, how is she going to deal with this very killing story type problem? Well, guess I better write it, huh? <laughs> and here in these pages in my denim notebook from April 4th, 2020, I did start to brainstorm a little bit. You know, one of the first things I write is, would she still kill him? Would that be the thing? But I'm going to get into the actual plot and story of the ending later. This little talk we're having today is all about the carry bag theory of fiction, so I will quickly cover two other small things that I think will really enhance the book. One is short and simple, which is Le Guin's comment, you know, about how that is why I like novels. Instead of heroes, they have people in them. Basically, you know, we want to have someone with a bit of depth who we can occasionally see fail in ways that make us more interested in them. And I want to do that with Vo, even when she's trying to be a capital H hero, even when I'm having her go full Conan in the second half of the middle act. I'm going to try and thread in stuff and make her a full person, not an archetype swinging around that's kind of like a cardboard stand-up at a movie theater made into a person. Which reminds me of a good bit of writing advice I saw one time about how if you're going to have an organization in your story, whether it's a government, a corporation, a street gang, whatever, don't have every member of that organization share the same beliefs. They're denying yourself all kinds of complexity and conflict that will make that organization more interesting, and you're also cutting yourself off from all kinds of story possibilities. Well, I think you can extrapolate this onto writing an individual character, your protagonist, right? Don't write someone who is a capital H hero who's got one quality and they always do the right thing or whatever. Write someone who has a whole bunch of qualities, many of which are in conflict with each other, like a bunch of little warring individuals in an organization, but they're all within one person. You'll get more story possibilities, they'll feel more real, they'll feel more like a person. And we can all relate more to people than heroes. The last thing from the carrier bag theory of fiction that I plucked out that I'll mention is something very literal, you know, just the whole idea of a hero who carries a bag, what do they put in it? And I start to think about Vo, who in the final third is kind of lost, even though she's having big, crazy cosmic adventures, she's doing them on someone else's behalf, possibly, probably, definitely, I think, in an involuntary fashion, kind of servitude, she would feel pretty down lacking agency, and maybe she finds a little way to reclaim some agency and find a little way to think of a future because she doesn't know when her servitude is going to end. So maybe, along with her warhammer and maybe some mighty armor that allows her to survive going to all kinds of strange environments, almost like a medieval spacesuit made out of the corpse of a terrifying bug or whatever the heck it's going to be, 
Maybe she carries a bag, a leather satchel, something along those lines, and in each crazy place she goes on behalf of her master or masters, she picks up a little something and she takes it with her onto the next place. And by the time she gets dumped in front of the wizard's tower, the bag is full or mostly full with all kinds of curious little objects. What role could those objects play in helping her overcome the wizard? What role could those objects play from all those other strange places with strange people with strange ways of living? What role could those objects play in her founding a community in the hypothetical book that I write after this one? All right, that's got my attention, let me tell you, and it feels true to life. It makes me think of times in life which have been very rough and where you're just kind of stuck in the continuing process of things. You know, it doesn't feel like you're going to find a resolution anytime soon. You don't know anyway when that resolution will happen, but you go through each day and you take what seems valuable, even if you can't act on it right away, and you file it away for when you can. I like that. Okay, I hope you've liked listening to me talk about the carryback theory and all that stuff that came after it. Now I think it's time to go over to a listener question. In the first episode, you discussed the Merrill Collection. How did you discover this collection, and what made you decide to become more involved? That question came from John Taylor in Ottawa. Thanks, John. I discovered the Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, Speculation, and Fantasy by pure good luck. As it turns out, the library in which this amazing, amazing archive of genre fiction, the largest publicly accessible archive of genre fiction in the Western Hemisphere, is located in is the library that happens to be my local library, Lillian H. Smith Branch, which you can find in Toronto on College Street, just a little bit east of College and Spadina. Specifically, you can find it on the third floor. It's the entire third floor, so you can't miss it. And I found that by merit of just, uh, well, honestly, I feel a little silly. I've been working in the main branch area on the first two floors for at least a couple of years, and one day, I just, the ambient noise got a bit loud, and I was like, ah, maybe I'll go higher, see what I find. Oh, look, I found the Merrill Collection. <laughs> What's this place? Well, it is a very quiet place for doing writing, which is right away an asset to any writers who might be listening to this. It is, of course, also fantastic for research. There hasn't been a single sword and sorcery or other speculative fiction novel that I've wanted to check out, also a lot of nonfiction related to those genres, that they haven't had. They often have multiple editions if you want to see some particularly stunning artwork from days gone by through those editions. It's fantastic for that as well. It's really helped me better shape my ideas about what I want this novel to look like, as well as its content. The staff are wonderful and knowledgeable and keen to recommend things. When the then head of the collection, this is 20, late 2015, Lorna Tulis spotted me in the place all the dang time, she recommended that I consider volunteering with an organization called the Friends of Merrill, a separate from the library system, you know, independent volunteer group whose whole reason for existing is to promote awareness of this uh, still relatively undiscovered treasure in Toronto's literary scene. So I attended a meeting, you know, and it's very low pressure when new members or potential new members are brought in. You know, I just attended a meeting listen to what was discussed and all the kind of mostly event planning that goes on with promoting the place, you know, like book launches and that kind of thing, panel discussions. And I decided, yeah, this sounds like something I want to get involved in. And it began with me just helping out with the social media. Nowadays, I do a whole bunch of stuff as the vice chair of the executive board, including 
a second podcast. Now, I have been saying I will interview people on this podcast, and I will. I just haven't decided exactly how I want to go about that, yada yada, but I will. It's in, my, it's in the stars. In the meanwhile, if you'd like to hear me conduct an interview about genre fiction, you could go check out Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. M-E-R-R-I-L is how Merrill spelled. Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. It's on iTunes and all the other places, and I will link to it in the description for this episode. In fact, the very first episode, I interview someone who has been with the collection quite a while, uh, named Annette Mossack, who knew Judith Merrill, the woman who helped get the collection started, as you can imagine. The through line of that podcast is connecting genre history to genre present and looking at how genre future might be. <laughs> you know, uh, we have all kinds of episodes. I love them all, including that very first one where you learn about the Merrill Collection itself. I think listeners of this podcast would be most likely to be intrigued by the episode about Appendix N fiction, which I've mentioned before, and role-playing games. Uh, both are combined, in which I interview Jeff Goad, who hosts the Appendix N Book Club podcast. It was a real fun one, and it covers a lot of fiction along the lines of what I've been studying for my Sword and Sorcery novel. To make life easy, I will link to the Merrill Collection website, to the Friends of Merrill Volunteer Group website. Uh, the Volunteer Group is currently not doing events because, of course, uh, COVID is still very much uh, around, though vaccines are giving us hope. We may have a Christmas event and return more or less to normal in the coming year. For you people who are not in Toronto, which is the majority of the human race last time I checked, I will also be linking to the digital collection within the Merrill. They are slowly but surely scanning all kinds of remarkable genre texts and art for you to check out online. So yeah, it's not just for Torontonians or people passing through Toronto anymore. So yeah, I guess this answer has gone a little long, but I'm going to add just a bit more before I tie it off, which is to say that thing I mentioned a moment ago about how the through line for the podcast is connecting genre history to genre present, and that's very important to the podcast, of course. It's also very important to me. The collection means a lot to me, aside from all the things I've already mentioned. I just think it's super important, not only as writers, but as readers and viewers of films and so on, that we learn about the past of what we enjoy so that we can get a richer, deeper enjoyment out of things in the present, knowing where they come from, what their influences are, and also so that if we want to create, we can create something better. Not copying the past necessarily uh, or remixing it, but learning from it, learning how to go further by learning what's already been done. Something that is very much on my mind, as you can imagine, while I'm working on this novel that is of a genre, or mostly of a genre, it's already looking like some parts of it might fall a little bit outside of sword and sorcery, but whatever, it's of a genre whose golden age was in the 30s and 40s, that had a sort of silver age, like renaissance in the 60s and 70s, and then had kind of a bronze age crap out in the 80s that left it kind of fallow for a long time and is only in recent years having a resurgence of interest. While working on my book, I'm going to want to pay attention to lessons I can learn from all four of those points in history. Now I want to pay attention to the birth, what made it really come out on fire, but if I only pay attention to that part, I'm going to write some niche thing that people who are collectors of the old stuff might have an interest in, but they could also just reread the old stuff. I'm going to want to pay attention to that Silver Age, see how did people come along and make that genre their own while still having it feel like sword and sorcery, but if I only paid attention to that part, then, well, it's still an old renaissance in the 60s and 70s. Then there's the 80s, there's lessons to be taken for when things go through a bad period, especially because a lot of that crap was crap. But some of the stuff that came out in the 80s was good, it just can't bad, bad timing and kind of died out into obscurity because everybody was dismissing the genre for good reason, given the majority of what was being cranked out then. 
And of course, I'm going to want to pay attention to the current resurgence. Who's interested in it now? Why is it coming back? How can it be made to go further? And of course, for all this, the Merrill Collection is a great resource. And if you're thinking, yeah, okay, great, Oliver. I don't live in Toronto. The digital thing is cool, but... You know, what about where I am? Well, where you are hopefully has a library system. And so just quote unquote, just the regular library is still a wonderful, magical thing. It's one of the best things we have in our society. Then there's getting to know the owners of secondhand bookstores. I have found many sword and sorcery and appendix and treasures around Toronto's secondhand bookstores. And I'm glad I've gotten to know some of, some of their owners. And of course, there's that their internet. <laughs> but you know what? You won't have to pay shipping if you buy from a local store, or if you really can't find it anywhere to buy, then going to the library, and if you're really lucky, a special collection like the Merrill will of course be a magnificent resource. Okay, I think I've been very thorough on that, so yes, thank you for listening to this episode on the Carrier Bag Theory and my answer to John's question. Next episode, I will be reading and discussing Vo, the short story that birthed this whole novel project. Why didn't I read it in episode 1? Why episode 7? That's weird. Well, I will also explain that too. I hope you'll join me. So, I'm writing a novel. Features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy. Using your phone is fine. Just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. At so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to two episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon.